Hello listeners, Fahad Ahmed here. Leo Tolstoy wrote, all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Similarly, successful companies share various attributes, positive cash flow, adequate management, satisfied customers, and so on. And each company weathering a rough patch has come to that moment on its own particular trajectory. This week, we speak with strategy professor Catherine Harrigan about two such companies, Smithfield Foods and J. Crew. The pandemic forced both companies to make difficult decisions about their organization's futures, but each in different ways. Listen on for their stories. Professor Catherine Harrigan, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure, Fahad. I'm very pleased to be with you today. You teach turnaround management at the business school. Could you tell us about the aims and the goals of this class? Like the title of the course sounds, it is about turning around companies that are in difficulty. Now, the course may be unique because you remember I'm actually a strategy professor. I'm not really a finance professor. Although there are financial aspects to the course, turning around a company that gets in trouble then is becoming insolvent and may well end up in court for a restructuring takes all kinds of, of skills. We do take a tour through some of the more technical things, but it is basically a management course about helping companies to get back on the, what I would call normal path so that normal investors and normal transactions with their, uh, with their suppliers can occur. What skills, Professor Harrigan, are you really looking to hone for the students? Like any strategy class, it's got to be pattern recognition, which is to say, I want the students to be able to look at a company and be able to get a clue as to what's wrong. What is the problem? And in this instance, there are a couple of really obvious simple first year kind of tests that you might learn in accounting or maybe finance that would tell you that the problem is that the cash isn't flowing through this company in a way that's going to keep it from getting into difficulty. Now, they may have lost customers. There may be other competitive problems too. But we start the course, the very first two sessions, just doing the really simple ratios. One of the key parts of the class is to really examine different case studies. And you recently included into the class syllabus two COVID-19 related case studies. One is Smithfield's Foods, and the second is J. Crew. How were these cases created? The cases were created as a gift last summer from alumni. Essentially, what happened was uh, COVID shut everything down. We had MBAs who were looking to do internships, or start with their employers early. And all of a sudden, everything was frozen. In a very timely fashion, the administration generated donations from alumni to be able to pay these people to be research assistants for professors like me to write cases. And as long as they had something to do with COVID, the projects were funded. My plate was full on things that I needed to write up that were going to be idiosyncratic to the problem of COVID. 
as I mentioned, one of the cases was Smithfield Foods. And this case was actually featured in the Wall Street Journal. Can you tell us about this case and why it was a good case for MBAs to study at this time? Okay, let me put this in context. The Wall Street Journal interview happened coincidentally because the reporter was from Nebraska. He was running through the uh, directories of cases about COVID and saw this company, which is located in South Dakota. He couldn't resist calling me to ask me why this case had been written and what, why it was in my course. Now, consider the context of Smithfield Foods. It was the very first meatpacking company to shut down. Very simply, President uh, Sullivan, the, uh, the, the chief executive officer of the company, found people were sick in March, and he shut the, co- he shut the company down. Of course, the federal government said, oh, no, you won't. And they invoked the uh, Defense Act of 1950. Two days later, after uh, Smithfield had shut down, two other big, better-known companies in meatpacking had also shut down. So what happened was that during the period when they were going to tussle a little bit with the federal government about whether they were going to reopen this plant or not, they sanitized it, they changed it as best they could, added PPE and things like that, and then put these people back to work. President Sullivan pushing back at the federal government to protect his workers and the fact that they were not automated made it almost a perfect case to go out and and run the numbers and find uh, exemplars of companies that actually had put robotics into meatpacking and then follow through the entire history. So by the time that we actually taught the case, which would be in the autumn semester, we had uh, had about six months of information about how Smithfield was trying to cope with this problem. And from... My understanding, there was quite a debate in the classroom about which direction Smithfield should go. Is that, is that right? Well, okay, the issue about the debate concerned the fact that I asked the students to write it up, which means I wouldn't just let them read it and say, oh, that's interesting. I asked them to push the numbers. We mm-hmm. had exemplars of what it cost to put in robotics, how quickly you could actually make it operational, And it seemed like it was a big hurdle. So I wanted the students to grapple with those numbers and say, is it really worth it or not? And so, yes, there was a debate. Yes, there was uh, a lot of uh, argument about whether or not this was the right thing to justify making that kind of an expenditure. There were some other wrinkles to the Smithfield case that were unusual. The company is actually owned by a Chinese uh, conglomerate that is a major uh, importer of pork. And during 2020, when the plants for meatpacking companies were shut down, um, a lot of of pigs had to be destroyed. And Mm -hmm. somehow an awful lot of pork was exported to China. So that that was a wrinkle in the story as to whether or not We were going to get the parent company to agree to finance this. We had the uh, Fitch information about their debt. So we knew how leveraged Smithfield Foods was individually without intervention from their parent company. So we had a sense 
of whether or not they had the debt capacity to be able to do this on their own. So then the debate was, well, is this the way we should use our debt capacity or are there other kinds of expenditures that are more appropriate? Then to compound this problem even further, Smithfield Foods is the leading company in pork processing. So it had 40 meatpacking plants. So you take the numbers that we were able to put into the case about Smithfield Foods, that's one pork processing line representing an eight-story factory. And that's not even the largest factory they had. So at that point, I, I think people who really wanted to do something radical to help the workers could even see that this was going to be a kind of a step-by-step -step kind of a decision. And I think that the class ultimately concluded maybe not, not at this time, but it's going to be an open question as to when pork processing or other kinds of meat processing will actually bring robotics into this, the processing step. Now, when the Wall Street Journal published that article, they showed it to Smithfield Foods ahead of time. And my research assistants had done this completely with archival, that is to say, published articles, mostly in the newspaper or transcripts from television broadcasts. So Smithfield Foods said to the, the reporter, we are automated. And when they bounced that back to me, I said, yeah, I'll bet, it, I'll bet they have automated conveyor belts that move pieces of meat from station to station. But I'm talking about robotic butchers. I'm talking about making the critical cuts that will make a big difference in whether that piece of meat is very, very valuable or is dog food. It was very difficult, in my opinion, Smithfield Foods, while they were trying to do the right thing for their workers, they were being politically whipsawed because there were several different competing government groups that jumped on the bandwagon, uh, some of them calling for antitrust investigations, some of them invoking inadequate uh, OSHA safety requirements, and the labor unions were also screaming that they wanted something to make it safer for their people to come to work. So no matter what management tried to do, it was never enough. And there was this battle about throughput because historically the government had encouraged farming industries to be able to process livestock faster and faster and faster. And if you slowed down the processing rate, you'd end up having to kill half of the hogs being farmed. So it was, it was a messy dilemma. The poor man, no matter what cho choices he made, he wasn't going to make everybody happy. So let's discuss the J. Crew case. I've got my entire J. Crew outfit on so I can channel the right energy here. What is it about the J. Crew story that makes it a good subject for a case study in your class? Everybody in New York, of course, knows J. Crew. And depending upon whether they're a fan of it or not, they probably wear J. Crew. So the case came in two parts. There was one part that simply described. J. Crew's creation and decision to go private. It's unusual, I think, 
in that the retailing company went private twice. Then the company rolled them out and, and captured back their money and they thrived and they became almost celebrity-like in their brand mark. And then the, private, the same private equity company said, gosh, you guys are really good. Let's go private again. So they did it again. So there's like this whole history of how this company was being built up and built up by private equity money. Now, this is a little bit technical. We were starting to work on how to talk about a trademark transfer uh, maneuver, which would have been used in the turnaround management course, innocently enough, without anything to do with COVID, just to explain about loan agreements. And the moral to the story is, You've got to read that loan agreement very carefully and get your lawyers uh, in on it. Oh, and I checked this out also with my recent graduates from the turnaround management course. And when I described the J. Crew trademark transfer story, they laughed and laughed and said, oh, you mean the trap door. That's what it's called, the, tr the magic trap door. And the asset disappears through it. The private equity company wanted to get more money out of J. Crew, And so they contrived of a way to restructure the balance sheet so that they moved the ownership of the trademark, which was worth an enormous amount of money, from the original loan party, which was covered by the original loan agreement which had been written to finance the transaction the second time that J. Crew went private. What they did was took it from a loan party, which had restrictions on all existing subsidiaries as to what could be transferred or not. They moved it to a non-loan party who was still covered by the restriction. That entity then moved it to a non-loan party who wasn't party to the original contract and therefore was unrestricted. And there was a big fight in 2017 as Eaton Vance and another creditor did not want to accept the new instrument that was being proposed uh, in a in a debt for debt swap. So they were angry. And while we were researching this particular trap door J. Crew was the first retailer to file for bankruptcy because of COVID. And I said, whoa, now we've got to have a B case to talk about what's going to happen. Because when J. Crew goes into bankruptcy, a typical outcome of that transaction is that the owners of the equity are going to be, they're going to get nothing. And the creditors are going to become the new owners of the equity, which means that these very same companies who were protesting the transaction in 2017 were now going to become the owners of this company. So this was, this was going to be a really interesting kind of a sequel or the B case, because there are a couple of days in the turnaround management course where I have to take the students through what typically happens. By the time that we actually taught the case, J. Crew had come out of bankruptcy, all restructured and beautiful and ready to go. So it's a miracle. Now it's a brand new company. It's hard to read what happened between 2017 
and 2020 when they made this filing and not think that the private equity company probably knew something bad was going to happen. So they had a CEO in place. There was a transaction. They could have spun off uh, their blue jeans, made well back in January, February, but they chose not to do so because that actually increased the value when they were in bankruptcy. And what the private equity company needed to do was cover all of their liability so they could get out more or less without any over encroachment when the company was restructured. So they come out the other side. Now the case describes prior to the bankruptcy, a number of things that J. Crew had done to alienate its traditional loyal customers. The new CEO now has to look at how to change um, their focus, how they're going to change the company. They were no longer reaching out to you and me as consumers. They were going for a more rarefied uh, group of customers. Coming out the other side, of course, they had to regain their focus. A critical decision they were going to have to make if they were going to be able to lure back their customers was exactly what they were going to stand for. And it was probably better to go back to being a company that featured big pineapples on their on their dresses. You know, it was it was originally a brand, an aspirational brand for people who were slightly leisured and could spend their weekends in the Hamptons. So it was probably a question of going back that direction. The other thing that, of course, Jan Singer would have to do would be find a way to make them feel. Jan Singer, the C- the CEO. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, she was formerly at Victoria's Secret. So, Professor Harrigan, a lot to unpack here. When we saw the headlines of J. Crew filing for Chapter 11, it is almost misleading because it makes it seem as if the pandemic was the cause of their troubles. But what what your case points out, and correct me if I'm wrong, they had a lot of trouble before that. If we think about that, you know, goal of the class to figure out what's wrong, was it the private ac- private equity acquisition of J. Crew twice that created some of the problems that it that it that it was having? Oh, it isn't the acquisition or going private twice that caused the problem. It's what the private equities companies do after their their uh, property has gone private. It's they're eager to get back as much of their seed investment as possible as quickly as possible. So everything, including that 2017 restructuring, was something that the owners of J. Crew had manipulated as a way to get more and more of the value that they had to pay for J. Crew back. So that is something which, of course, the students eventually concluded themselves was, yeah, the private equity companies had kind of made it difficult for this company to have a robust cash flow. They had allowed this company to forget about their core customer. There were a lot of other things that were probably wrong decisions that 
were there that weakened the foundations of the company so that it went into bankruptcy. I think it may have been opportunistic because before this company was actually restructured and came out of bankruptcy, all of the stores were closed and the private equity company that still owned it while in bankruptcy repudiated the leases. Of course, they were actually not gonna repudiate the leases if the stores ever opened again, but it was a wonderful bargaining negotiation to be able to get much nicer terms for paying the landlords for at least a couple of years. So you could even look at the way that they did their bankruptcy as a ploy on the part of private equity companies to extract as much value as possible. Well, this is another thing which I think the students taking turnaround management should be aware of. They can probably take a course in the finance department about private equity, but did anybody consider what it meant to be a company managed under the ownership mm -hmm. of private equity? I'm gonna show them the other side of the problem. I'm gonna show them what it was like to have owners that were constantly trying to suck money out of the company with a straw. It makes it very difficult to sustain all of that image building and things that the, the leadership tried to do running up through 2017 and, and shortly thereafter. Once those people who were the great image builders left the company, it was sort of a revolving door as far as leadership. It didn't really have a focus anymore. And the, the successor leaders couldn't perpetuate what the celebrity leaders had done. So I think the company lost its focus. I think that it didn't respond quickly enough to the fact that it was losing or alienating customers. Bankruptcy was logical. And I think that COVID was convenient. I think they could mm -hmm. have run that company a little bit longer. They were, they were very skillful with the cash flow, but it was convenient. So they were right there. Bang. First one in the courthouse. Blame is placed on those image builders. Jenna Lyons and Mickey Drexler, the leadership, especially even during the glory years, 2008, 10, and 11. We call Michelle Obama wearing J. Crew at the first inauguration. Isn't some of the blame placed on them that they, you know, sort of steered it in a direction, as you made mention to the fact that they lost their way. They, they changed their, they changed the core of who they were as a, as a fashion brand. I, I would agree. But where was the oversight? I've been on several boards of directors where as a director, I would have questioned a decision like that. The private equity company that owned them did not question it. They let these people go off in a direction that, as we can see now in hindsight, was a mistake because we became just far too expensive and our taste in clothing became far too radical for people to dare to wear those garments to work. As the reading indicates, they had a, a relatively smooth process through the bankruptcy court. Is, is that fair? And why? What, what, what allowed them to go through bankruptcy relatively smoothly? 
to explain why they were able to reach a settlement in bankruptcy, I have to get a little bit technical one more time. This was a relatively uncontested bankruptcy case because some of the parties that were of a higher priority creditor were willing to give up some of the value that would have been theirs under the strict interpretation of the law because there were some categories of uh, creditor where they tried to squash claimants that didn't really belong together. And among the, the, the creditors who protested violently in this instance were consulting firms, accounting firms, and other service providers whose bills were not being paid, and they were being put into a group of claimants who were essentially getting the majority of what was owed to them, and this was the leftover class. So they said, this isn't fair. There's no debate here. These people are already committed to vote in favor of the plan. And they could have made a fuss about this. They did have one extra step of hiring a different appraiser to testify that the numbers that were offered to the court were too low. So they were victorious in being able to argue for a higher valuation. Bankruptcy always turns on valuation. That's the heart of finance. You know, what's, what's it really worth? So ultimately, because the higher class uh, claimants were willing to forego all of their potential settlement, it left some scraps for this class. This was like the sixth class down. Okay, so all of the five classes before that had been, got, they'd gotten pretty much everything that was they were entitled to, but there was really very little left when you squashed in these leftover uh, claims. And so somebody had to sweeten the pot. And that's my best technical answer is people were willing to take less in order to get people to shut up and sign the deal and get out of bankruptcy court. There have been cases that go on for years because uh, claimants cannot agree. These people were very pragmatic. So successfully exiting Chapter 11 does not necessarily equal success after Chapter 11. Was there a discussion with the students on what they can do, what J. Crew can do to find success after Chapter 11? Everybody pretty much agreed that they're going to need to regain their focus. But what exactly the new J. Crew should be, I think not everybody was unanimous on that. It's going to be hard for J. Crew to recover some of the things it was. For example, tailored suits. Until that comes back, that's a large portion of mm -hmm. revenue that they're not going to get back. Women's fashion is a little bit mercurial. Anyhow, the people who were big fans of J. Crew 10 years ago maybe are not buying as much anymore, so they have to face mm -hmm. a new generation. I think that's the struggle for all real retail companies right now because the environment in which people are shopping is either all digitally 
or if it is a in-person retail experience, it's much different and a little uh, sketchy, for the lack of a better word, because of the fact that COVID is still lingering around. Well, here's something that the case did bring out, but not in a big way. To be able to reach the customer digitally, J. Crew should have had an internet initiative before it filed for bankruptcy. It did not. J. Crew did not sell its wares on Amazon. And I think that may be one of the decisions that they have taken more recently. Are there lessons from J. Crew's experience with private equity and bankruptcy that would apply to other established retail outlets? Two years from now, when COVID is finally licked and we can go back to interacting live, I would imagine we'll use this case and we'll be talking more about the internet strategy that J. Crew mm-hmm. eventually has to adapt to and the fact that retailing has been so disrupted that all of those companies that were in that situation, many of which took private equity money, are in the position of having to turn themselves around and change their whole approach to doing business. How valuable do you think it's been for the students to analyze these cases that are directly associated with the pandemic now um, versus later? It made it a lot of fun for both of the cases because there is no easy answer. You can't go online and look to see what did the company actually do and assume that was the correct answer. These are good cases even after... COVID is is less of a concern because these these managers are coping with crisis. So many moving parts, so many bad things happening simultaneously. These are cases which will continue uh, to be examples of crisis management. And that's what a management elective is supposed to ask these students to do beyond the numbers, which we hope everybody can manipulate by the time they get their MBA. I'm talking about leaders. I'm talking about the responsibility of continuing these companies. That's the real objective in turnaround management is to try to preserve the value of the company for the owners. Professor Harrigan, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with us today. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And I hope that you will continue to be a loyal Columbia proponent. That's our episode. Many thanks to Professor Katherine Harrigan for her time. Are you a CBS alum who's helped the company go through a difficult time? We'd love to hear from you about your experiences. You can email us at bizcast at gsb.columbia.edu or find us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Columbia underscore biz. Subscribe to BizCast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.